stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, it's not often a New York Times podcast uh, makes for uh, the the basis of debate and question period. But this was uh, a pretty eerie podcast. And it's not surprising then that our our federal politicians would spend some time talking about it. Uh, It was a guy who uh, is in Toronto now, but admits to going over to the so-called Islamic State, the Caliphate, and fighting with ISIS. He is now back in Toronto. He spoke with the New York Times, Rukmini Kalamaki. And it's just some of what he had to say. Yeah, we had dolls to practice on. We had also have cutouts of ballistics gels. It would feel a lot like human. And uh, inside the ballistics gels, they'd have sacks where major organs would be. And then you could just slice, practice, behead stab and you know just practice and then you we'd also fire weapons into them to see what damage a bullet would do so it kind of felt like what a medical student would do this is something you learned in the training yeah yeah you had to know how to slice the head off slice the head off so this is someone who talks about training with isis and is given conflicting versions of what he actually did did he participate in executions did he participate in killing He seemed to be saying to the New York Times that he did. He has said elsewhere, including a conversation last year with Global News, that he did not. So if we're going to go after this guy, calls himself Abu Huzefa al-Kanadi, which is a pseudonym. Can we make a case against this guy for these kinds of crimes? What about the mere act of going over there and being a part of ISIS? And should we have let him back in? Could we have stopped him from coming back in? So this came up in in question period on Friday. I just want to play for you again a little snippet from that because uh, you've got uh, conservative House leader Candace Bergen uh, asking some pointed questions of the public safety minister, Ralph Goodale. This individual described how he executed individuals by shooting them in the back of the head. He said that the people he was shooting deserved it. And he said, I know I won't be held accountable. He said that at least twice. He said this was all part of his goal to becoming a frontline fighter. Media are reporting this individual is in Toronto right now as we speak. Can the government confirm it? If the media knows where he is, he's talking to the New York Post, why isn't this government doing something about this? The Honourable Minister of Public Safety. Mr. Speaker, uh, I am charged with the responsibility of keeping Canadians safe. Discussing operational matters on the floor of the House of Commons is exactly the opposite of keeping Canadians safe. What I can say, Mr. Speaker, is that CSIS, the RCMP, and all the related security and police agencies of this country are doing their job and taking all of the steps necessary to ensure that justice is enforced. Okay, so they are at least attempting to do their job. But an interesting new piece today, an exclusive for Global News, shows that it is quite a challenge they are facing. Canada's strategy for managing the return of these former fighters is detailed in documents obtained by Global News that point to the hurdles police face in foreign fighter investigations and the alternative approaches they are trying because criminal charges have proved so challenging. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about why that's become such a challenge and what's being done to at least monitor these individuals 
and then maybe investigate them, potentially lay charges against them, is Stuart Bell, investigative journalist with Global News, globalnews.ca. Stuart, thanks for joining us here. Hi, Rob. A lot of this uh, attention falls uh, from from the comments from this uh, Abu Huzaifa, as he calls himself. Now, the New York Times spoke with him last week. You actually spoke with him uh, some months ago, didn't you? Yeah, we uh, we interviewed him uh, last summer, I guess it was, uh, in 2017. And um, he told a similar story to what the, he's told the Times, but it's a little bit different. He, for example, uh, the major thing is when we interviewed him, he denied having killed anybody, whereas to the Times, he's now admitted to uh, to conducting executions. Um, so there's a little bit of uh, disparity between the, the accounts he's provided, and there's some huge disparities. So uh, he's lying to one of us, and uh, we're not quite sure which one of us at this point. Well, and I mean, that's the troubling thing. I mean, if it, it's at least plausible that he, he committed crimes over there, and that's, that's certainly something that, that we could, in theory, charge him for. But, I mean, unless he's going to sign well, a no sworn confession, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question he committed crimes. Simply leaving Canada to uh, to participate in a terrorist group is a crime. Uh, having served in a terrorist group is a crime. Uh, so having been a member of ISIS, yeah, these are all things that are illegal, regardless of the specific you know, acts that he may or may not have uh, done. But um, as you know, as reporting today, uh, this is sort of something we've been, I've been hearing for some time from police, is that they're really having a hard time bringing charges against people um, that have, you know, gone abroad, uh, taken part in terrorist activity of some form, and then come back to Canada. And uh, this is what's generated some of the political debate, and some of the documents we were able to get uh, adds a little more nuance to that issue. Well, I suppose it does. So uh, talk a bit more about, you know, what, what you found in, in these documents, because it's it's interesting the dilemma that, that officials face, because if, if there's something clear-cut maybe that makes it easier to move forward and on investigation. I mean, certainly it seems as though even just to, to realize who these individuals are, to even try to uh, put together, piece together where someone's been traveling, how long they've been gone, where they went, who they were with. I mean, it's it's a really daunting challenge in some cases. Yeah, and we really haven't known hardly anything about what, how the government has uh, been dealing with these cases, because there are a number of people that have already come back, some of them from ISIS. Um, so, and the government has sort of just said, well, you know, we're leaving that to our agencies to deal with, um, which is fine. But um, what we were able to uncover is, you know, sort of the strategy that they have in place. Um, so what's happened is the, the government uh, has, uh, and this goes back a number of years, but those that they know have gone overseas to join ISIS, for example, the government has canceled their passports, so they can't they can't come back until they first uh, go to a diplomatic mission of some kind overseas and uh, and try to get a new one. And so that is a kind of an early warning system for the RCMP that there's somebody out there that wants to come back. Some of these people have also been arrested um, by authorities in places like Turkey and uh, Syria and Iraq. So, again, um, the RCMP has some notice that people are coming. Uh, 
when they when they do know that someone is on their way, uh, there's the government has set up what's called a high risk returnee interdepartmental task force, which works with the RCMP to try and coordinate this person's return, um, and uh, and also to sort of ex- uh, try and assess what level of threat this person poses. Is this you know is it for example a child of an ISIS fighter who's a Canadian? Is it the wife of an ISIS fighter? Is it somebody who was himself active and may still be quite dangerous? And depending on those kind of things, um, these documents are telling us the RCMP uh, may send somebody overseas to an undercover officer, for example, to accompany this person on the flight. And then the CBSA will be watching for this person when they arrive and do... uh, do a secondary inspection, and, and uh, that could lead to you know questioning and and possibly even detention. Right. Is, so is there is a whole system in place to, as they say, as they describe it, to facilitate the return of uh, of these people. Right, and I think that that's the concern some have raised. That, that why are we allowing them back into the country in in the first place? Could we stop them from returning if we wanted? Well, that's uh, that's spelled out in uh, very great detail in these documents in that they say that uh, the government's interpretation is that there is a right to return and every Canadian citizen has the right to come back and therefore even those that have been abroad participating in terrorism, the Canada Canada has an obligation to not just to allow them back but to facilitate their return. Well, and that's where there's been a lot of controversy. Obviously, some have soured on the idea of of ISIS and the caliphate sort of turned against this ideology. Maybe there are some who could potentially be be turned into assets, but uh, there are also those who who may still harbor these beliefs and have simply come back because uh, the the caliphate is is crumbling. So are we well-equipped enough to to discern between those who who can perhaps be uh, assets and those that we should be concerned about? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, uh, many people commit crimes and then feel bad about it, but that doesn't mean that you you get a free yeah, yeah, pass, right? Uh, so, and these are some of the worst, most horrific crimes you could imagine. Um, but the trouble is that the the investigations uh, that are required to bring a charge against somebody who has gone overseas and been active in a group like ISIS, uh, it's it's very very difficult complicated and resource-intensive investigation that um, you're talking about trying to gather evidence about what someone did in another country that's a war zone where you have absolutely no presence and no ability to even go after the fact and interview people and collect evidence. So uh, I think in a lot of these cases, in fact, all of the ISIS cases so far, the RCMP has been unable to bring a terrorism charge uh, against people that have returned. And so that's forced them to look at other alternatives. Uh, peace bonds were one option, and that even those require a level of evidence gathering that may, they may not be able to uh, to accomplish. So what they're doing is looking at uh, other ways of trying to mitigate the threats. The, the RCMP has what they call uh, intervention teams, which they sometimes are able to send out to uh, sort of do an assessment on you know, how dangerous is this person, but also to try and work with them and their families to try and disengage them from from the extremist 
ideology and the violence that they, they were wrapped up in. And do we have any ideas as to what the numbers are, Stuart? Well, the numbers that the government uh, has given us are that there are currently about 190 um, people abroad that are currently active in various terrorist groups. And the majority of those are in the Syria and Iraq region. Uh, and then there's another 60 or so that have been active in terrorism in various parts of the world and have come back. So that's the numbers we're working with. Um, we do know that of the returnees that are already here, um, there's only really a couple that were active in ISIS. There's there's this one in the Toronto area that um, has been in the news recently. There there were I think two in the Calgary area, um, both of all of whom have come back and not been prosecuted. Which could still happen, but uh, as you say, it is it is quite a challenge to to bring about those charges. Yeah, I mean, it could still happen. Who knows? Um, these investigations, you know, I think the ones that the, the RCMP really focuses on, they, they could take some time. And as someone pointed out uh, to me last week, with, uh, with the current legal standards, uh, between charging somebody and um, you know prosecuting them, there's really only a two-year window now that's been established by legal precedent. So... Uh, the the idea of just sort of charging someone as soon as they come back and hoping you can collect the evidence isn't going to work either. Well, more on this story, uh, including uh, the latest uh, details today on the government's response plan, globalnews.ca. Stuart, uh, thanks for this. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Rob. All right, Stuart Bell, investigative journalist with Global News, uh, globalnews.ca. Uh, so it's it's somewhat harrowing, as he points out, disclosed under the Access to Information Act. The documents are a stark assessment of the prospects that former ISIS fighters will ever face criminal charges upon their return to Canada. Quote, often they require evidence of an individual's activity in foreign conflict zones or rely on information provided by partners that we are not authorized to disclose in court. The RCMP also faces challenges in collecting digital evidence, including access to encrypted communication. So in other words, intelligence agencies might have some idea about what these individuals have been up to, uh, but is that evidence that can be disclosed? Is that evidence that can be presented in a court in terms of building a case against somebody? I mean, it seems to me that, yeah, there would be a challenge in proving that someone was over there helping ISIS commit executions, but in terms of simply proving that they went there, that seems like an easier bar to clear. And I think it's incumbent on the government to at least try to lay some of those charges. If these charges don't go through, if they don't get to trial in time, well, I guess we can deal with it at this point. But I think the first point would be to try to lay these charges and make it clear uh, that we're not just going to let it slide. There's a reason why this is a crime in the first place. And we've, we've charged people with attempting to go over there. So it's a really odd double standard, and to say we're not going to charge people who actually did and came back. The government estimates about 190 Canadian extremists are currently active in terrorist groups overseas, mostly in Syria and Iraq. An additional 60 have returned, and police are bracing for another wave of returnees over the next one to three months. Our Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.